Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. My name is Caleb Mason, and I am so grateful that you have decided to spend part of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today, I am honored to be joined by Nijay, actually, Dr. Nijay Gupta, to talk with him about his brand new book, Tell Her Story, How Women Led, Taught, and Ministered in the Early Church. And... You know, I'm really looking forward to this. You know, I felt like I learned a ton going through this book as well. And that's what we do here on the Learner's Corners. We explore uh, a bunch of questions, you know, curiosities, and have just a lot of great conversations. And today we're going to get into another one, which can sometimes be viewed a little bit controversial depending on your background. But women in leadership in the church. And we're going to talk with Nijay about some of the context around that, his experience with that, and um, learning more of the context that is found in, in scripture and the history of the Christian faith as well. Now, if you have been listening to this podcast for a while or you enjoy this conversation, please subscribe to my Substack to where I, you know, just basically give bunches of recommendations of the things that I am learning from and enjoying. And it can it can range from podcasts to videos to books and movies and just all sorts of good stuff. And so please subscribe to the Substack and you'll get notified about all that stuff when I send it out. And so let me tell you a little bit about Nijay and then we will go into the conversation. Dr. Nijay Gupta is a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary. Previously, he was a professor of New Testament at Portland Seminary, where he also oversaw the master's thesis program and advised doctoral students. He is the author of Worship That Makes Sense to Paul and Prepare, Succeed, Advance, a guidebook for getting a PhD in biblical studies and beyond along with many Bible commentaries and over a dozen academic articles in theological journals. And so, without any further wait, here is our conversation. Jay, it is so good to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, Caleb. Good to be with you. Yeah, and you know, you have authored this book, Tell Her Story, How Women Led, Taught, and Ministered in the Early Church. And one of the places that I think it might be good to start is I would just love to hear like your own personal experience just with women leading, teaching in the church, you know, growing up and and everything. Yeah, uh, thanks for that um, question and opener. Um, I grew up in North Central Ohio. Um, I became a believer as a teenager, um, and I went to uh, Grace Brethren Church um, uh, as as a new Christian. It was a wonderful community, very warm, um, deep. They embraced me. They loved me. They cared for me. Um, it was also a church that followed pretty. I would say pretty strict um, rules about men preaching, men as elders, men as pastors. Um, and it was all done, I think, in a spirit of wanting to be biblical, wanting to be, um, you know, conservative in, I'd say, in the best sense of the word, of conserving uh, the, the tradition of, of uh, biblical Christianity. I just didn't, I didn't think about it. It just was the way it is. I, you know, as, as I converted or became a believer, I just sort of accepted it as the way, um, the way the church is, is, you know, this is the place where there are strict religious rules, uh, around what men and women, uh, can and can't do. Um, and then in college, uh, similar experience, I got involved with Campus Crusade for Christ, which follows a kind of complementarian um, gender roles sort of thing. Women can do a lot and they can be missionaries and they can teach and lead. But, you know, Crusade has uh, their own rules around um, kind of men, making sure men are at the top of the, of, of the leadership system. Um, I'm guessing to reflect, you know, patterns in their minds within scripture. And, and I didn't really question that either. 
Um, and I went to seminary, Gordon-Conwell Seminary, um, and I went to seminary kind of convinced in my own mind that I'm going to hold to that, what I thought was biblical tradition. And then in seminary, I got to, to I got introduced to other viewpoints. I didn't know anything about Methodists or Pentecostals. I, I had no exposure to other traditions other than the really narrow ones. And this is one of the gifts, Caleb, of seminary, hopefully for people that are in a um, diverse environment, is you're going to be exposed to things you've never thought about, things that uh, challenge why you have the beliefs that you do. And I'd say one of the key factors was actually uh, interacting with other seminary students that are women who are studying to be pastors. And at first I was, you know, kind of <laughs> worried about them, that they're going to contaminate my faith or they're going to be polluted, polluting the environment. And as I got to know them, they, they were just like me. They love Jesus. They want to be faithful to scripture. They um, are sorting out their calling. They don't want to disobey God. They don't want to disobey the apostles. Um, and I, I changed my mind over the course of seminary. I, I, I did some major research over about a year and a half. And then um, I just, you know, became convinced that I was wrong uh, about this. And I had too narrowly defaulted to things like Jesus is a man and the disciples were all men, which is not exactly true. The apostles were all men, which is, again, not true. Um, you know, the, the, the prophets were all men, which, again, is not true. But that's, you know, I have a line in my book, which comes from uh, a philosopher and scientist. Uh, and, the, and the statement is, the map is not the territory. And the idea behind that is when we're looking at a map, like, you know, I'm driving to you know, uh, Trader Joe's or I'm driving to Ikea, uh, I'm going to use a map to find my way. And we can sometimes confuse the map with the actual reality because the map is a simplification. Yeah. The map is giving you a road, but it's not telling you there are plants and trees and, you know, all of that. And what I came to realize, I, I love that statement, the map is not the territory, because I confused a certain what I call androcentric, which means male-centered. I confused mm -hmm. an androcentric map for the actual territory of Scripture. And the point of my book is when you read the Bible itself, Old and New Testament, women are everywhere that men are doing everything that men are doing. That's, that's kind of the tagline to my book. Yeah. Well, first, I didn't know that you grew up in central Ohio. I'm, uh, I'm in Akron. Okay, and I so... grew up in Ashland. Okay. Yep, yeah, I so fly not... into Akron Canton sometimes, yeah. and um, my dad is works for the Cleveland Clinic, and yeah. uh, he often goes to Strongsville, which is not far. Oh so, yeah. yeah. Yep. No, oh, that's that's cool. As soon as I heard uh, that, and then I'm familiar with Grace Brethren too. So you, you a... actually may have been to Grandpa's Cheese Barn as people <laughs> pass through Ashland, uh, the heartland of the heartland is Ashland, yeah. Ohio. <laughs> and our claim to fame is people stop through on their way to Indians games. Yeah. You'd be going the other way, but, and they, so I'll check out grandpa's cheese bar. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Um, I, I want to go back to that time whenever you first started doing like your research into this and you know, you, you're, you're counting what you experienced. Then you go, okay, what is it really like? Do you remember what, like one of the first, like, I don't know if shocking is the right word, but shocking pieces of evidence yeah. in the Bible tour were like, wow, women were really involved in this. Yeah, well, one of the first shocking things was overturning my assumption of what's called primogeniture. Primogeniture means privilege of the firstborn. And this is often used with Adam and Eve. And I just kind of taken, as I heard that in the past, I'd taken it, okay, Adam was created first. That makes him in some way has a higher stature. And then I read all these books that said God has a tendency to, to purposely choose not only the second born, but sometimes the last born to upend our assumptions about power and status and who's important and who's worthy. And so David's a good example when Saul was, you know, 
uh, sorry, when Samuel was going around looking for the next king and he goes to the house of Jesse, he has all the people line up. It feels almost like a Disney movie. He has all the brothers line up and they're handsome and tall and strong. And, you know, he has them all line up and, and Samuel's checking each one and kind of listening for the Lord. And the Lord's like, no, 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 no. And Samuel's like, we've run out of people. And then, nope, they have one more brother, the youngest, and he's out out fighting, you know, bears, you know, whatever he's doing out there with lions and bears and tigers. Um, and God chooses the least and the last to be the most famous king of Israel. Um, what does that tell us about God's way of being in the world and even his way of choosing leaders? That was one of these like, whoa, mind-blowing moments. What I ended up discovering, Caleb, is uh, time and time again, uh, I, what I had built in my head as a firm structure of complementarian or androcentric theology was more like a Jenga tower. And what, what, what happened over the course of seminary as I was studying is pieces I thought were really foundational and stable kept being removed as I realized Actually, that's not 100% true or there's more to the story. So just the example of women disciples. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you thought about the disciples growing up, but I remember as a teenager, in my mind as I'm reading the Gospels, I'm imagining Jesus and 12 men. Mm -hmm. And they're camping out and they're going from city to city. Like when they show up at Cheesecake Factory, they're getting a reservation for 13. That's what I'm imagining in my head. And as I got into, especially Luke, uh, Luke and scholarship, uh, the Gospel of Luke, it, 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 it's pretty obvious. Not only are there lots more people that follow Jesus, and the idea of following Jesus is discipleship, right? There's not only the lots more, but women are there. Luke chapter eight, verses one to three. You have Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Susanna and all these women and many more women, as Luke says, who are single. Uh, widow or whatever reason, and they're following Jesus and they have money and they're paying for his ministry. Um, that really expanded my imagination. Okay. If I'm wrong about this, what else am I wrong about? And we could talk about Deborah. We could talk about Hulda. We could talk about Junia, but I really started to question an androcentric approach to the Bible that I had been taught this really blind spot, <laughs> heavy mm -hmm. approach and tell her story is really about seeing everybody that's there. But um, I would say, I would say the Adam and Eve thing was was kind of an earth shattering moment for me to realize just because someone came first doesn't make them more important. Mm, that's so good. I I would love to hear how do you think we got to this place to where like we like that idea of men being uh, the leader prevailing it you know the first just as you said most important. How do we get here? Because it wasn't always that way. At least Jesus didn't teach that way. That wasn't the intention. Yeah. And yet so much in church, we find that to be the case. I think, I mean, we could spend years talking know, about say, this. That's a, that's a big But question. I think two <laughs> things need to be said right away. One is a misunderstanding of the nature of Scripture. Mm -hmm. And then two is... Uh, um, the power of patriarchy throughout the years, right? A, a mm -hmm. cultural, political, legal, social system that it's hard to, you know, untether ourselves from. But let's start with scripture. Um, a, a, a fundamentalist, uh, a rigidly fundamentalist approach to the Bible is to say, whatever is written is a universal command for all times in all places. Um, I call this a direct universal hermeneutic. And many Christians throughout time and today operate with that hermeneutic. The Bible, that does it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I know what's on people's hearts when they want to do that. They want to be faithful to God. And that is great. The problem is that's not the way the Bible was written. And that's not the, that's not, I don't think that's what, the Christian leaders had in mind when they canonized the Bible because there are lots of things in the Bible that we know not to obey. For example, having slaves or 
putting certain prices on people like in the Old Testament, right? Mm -hmm. um, or legitimizing rape or, you know, all kinds of things, you know, polygamy. There's all kinds of stuff in the Bible that is affirmed or isn't criticized. And we hopefully know <laughs> not to just baptize it and say, oh, as long as it's in the Bible, you know, um, show them no mercy. We know, okay, no, God is a God of mercy. And that command was for Israel, very specific time for very specific reasons, et cetera, et cetera. Don't get tattoos. Don't braid your hair. Most of us know braiding your hair is okay, right? Yeah. But those commands are in scripture. Um, Paul says to Timothy, uh, drink less water, drink more wine. Uh, okay. <laughs> I don't think that's the best medical advice yeah. for acid reflux or whatever Timothy was going through. So um, we can be faithful to scripture. We can be faithful to God without baptizing and Christianizing every single thing because God, so the way I explain it to my students is, um, there is an ideal that God is after, right? Monogamy, no idolatry, right? All of these things. And then there's the, there's the fallen world that we live in. And God has chosen to speak into the world that we live in. But often the way he's addressing these things is, uh, kind of weaning us off of <laughs> our unhealthy things. So God just doesn't zap us with all of the truth or else our faces will melt like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, what he does is this is theologians divine accommodation. God is going to meet us where we are and move us forward. So in some ways, God is going to meet us within the broken systems that we have to try to transform us. Take, for example, the household codes where wives be submissive, slaves yeah. be obedient. We know it's not, we know a slave leaving a master today around the world would be a good thing, right? To seek mm -hmm. freedom, to seek liberation, to seek abolition. But these are commands given within scripture. And so, you know, asking the question, how did we get here? I think uh, one is a, is a really shriveled, uh, well-intentioned, but um problematic hermeneutic which means the philosophy of interpretation mm -hmm. i think that's one problem is is not a, is not a healthy biblical uh, uh approach uh, approach to the bible a second thing is the power of culture today um you know i someone asked me yesterday do you see a line into the future where the church would become more and more accepting of women in ministry i actually don't because of the political landscape of the United States is so polarized. And for the foreseeable future, I see those polar extremes just bombing each other from afar. So I, I see those extremes continuing. Um, so, I, and a lot of this isn't just people are misreading their Bible or people reading their Bible well. I think this is the impact and influence of social issues, political issues, legal issues, ideological issues, all wrapped up in all of this. Mm -hmm. I want to go back. You know, you you mentioned the household. There are the household codes. Yes. Which is, I mean, it's that, and it's First uh, Timothy two that people always bring up in this conversation. Sure, and uh, sure. before, and and then the most, the rest of our conversation, I really do want to focus on the women in the scripture, but I do want to talk about mm -hmm. uh, the objections. And so, would you mind just providing even a little bit more context around First Timothy two and what's going on there in the household cold? Sorry, the household codes. Yeah, let's start with First Timothy 2. I'm just going to be brief because I do have chapters on this in my book. But, mm -hmm. I, you know, that, that's been one of the things I read early on in my faith where I was like, okay, this is a settled issue. It's clear in the Bible. I hear that all the time. It's clear, it's clear, it's clear. Now, uh, I don't know if you know this, Caleb, but I'm one of the uh, senior translators for the New Living Translation. So I have a lot of experience. Um, I joined the team recently, but I have a lot of experience in teaching Greek and Bible translation I want mm -hmm. to affirm that Bible, English Bible translations overall are very good, very clear. 
But there are a couple of places in Scripture, I would say maybe five places, yeah. <laughs> five to ten places in Scripture, where translators and scholars actually aren't in agreement on how something should be translated because the information we have is limited. Mm -hmm. It's not just on gender issues, it's on other issues as well. And it's just a matter of the, 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 the Greek wording is genuinely hard to interpret. And we, and we actually have that with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul, according to some traditional translations, Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. And that sounds like Paul is saying, I have this rule, men teach, women are taught, that's strict, it's everywhere. Um, the problem with that reading of it is the word for have authority, which is one word in Greek, authenteo, um, is one of these words that we actually don't know exactly what it means. And that's a problem because this is one of those linchpin texts. And um, I learned this from a theologian named Nicholas Waltersdorf. He said, if we're going to create a doctrine around this, we have to operate with the clearest texts. And this is not... So let's let me give you an example. If I yeah. want to, if I want to translate the Greek word logos, which means word, um, you know, the ancients did not write Greek English dictionaries, right? They didn't have English. So what we do is we try to get tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of uses of a word to try to zero in on what the word means, right? Because we have to work with greek to latin and then latin to english or or mm -hmm. greek to uh coptic or greek to syriac you know we use all these other languages kind of like the rosetta stone we're trying to zero in so the ideal to pinpoint exactly what a word means is you have many 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 occurrences the more the better tens hundreds of thousands and sometimes that's the case and that's great but if a word is rare the rarer it is the harder it is to determine its meaning for us today. So for a common word, uh, you might have 100, 200,000 uses in the in the all Greek, ancient Greek literature. For this word, authenteo, uh, it occurs in 1 Timothy 2. It doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament, not in Paul, not anywhere else. Mm -hmm. It doesn't occur as a verb in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that we can use for comparison. It doesn't really occur in Jewish literature of the time. It doesn't occur uh, very much in other literature, we only have about eight to 10 uses outside of the New Testament and ancient Greek literature. It's hard for me to express how few that is, but here's the way I explain it to my, my students. Imagine you hear a word today in church or on TV, and you've never heard the word before. You've never seen it written. And after today, you will never hear the word again. That's the type of rarity that we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have to ask yourself, why would Paul use such a rare verb when it was almost bound to be misunderstood if this is a clear teaching that he gives everywhere all the time? Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, based on some comparison scholars do to words that are the few occurrences we have and words based on the same root of the word, there's good reason to believe Paul's not talking about have authority. He's talking about a domineering approach to other people. And I think Paul is saying, uh, I don't allow women to overpower men. But I think he would mm -hmm. also say, I don't allow men to overpower women. Mm -hmm. I think there was a situation going on in Ephesus where Paul's writing to Timothy. We know there's a major false teaching. We know the false teaching focused on women. And it was whipping them up into a frenzy and causing them to to start to make trouble and paul saying no you need to chill out <laughs> that's my translation yeah. you need to chill out i need to make sure you have all your facts straight before you before you start you know asking questions yeah and so i talk about this as lockdown paul is asking timothy to lock this church down because of the infectious spread of a false teaching that focuses on women um that's a theory, but you know what? That's what scholars do. We try to construct a theory to explain the language because when you have rare language, that's usually a signal of an unusual situation. Now, there's so much more to it than that. That's just a taste yeah. of how I get into it. 
But some people think, oh, these liberals are just starting to do liberal things. Go back to the King James. Go back to medieval translations. Um, they actually talk about this as domineering or usurping authority. They don't talk about it as positive authority. So um, actually talking about as neutral authority or positive authority is a newer interpretation of this verse. And I have those statistics in my book. Yeah. So whenever you say lockdown, do you just mean like, just elaborate more on that whenever Paul's saying lock down that church? Yeah, he's he's giving them really strict rules. In, or just like we had strict rules about not leaving your house, you know, wearing yeah. masks. He's giving this one church really strict rules mm -hmm. about how they should behave. Now, he's saying everywhere, but what he means is nowhere do I allow this kind of dissension. Mm. Nowhere do I allow this kind of coup. Yeah. I don't think he's saying, you know, women, you know, be his normal posture in the church is not about power and authority. It's, you know, First Thessalonians 5, he says respect those leaders who give care presiding over you he uses more softer language when he's talking about leadership here mm -hmm. he's talking about basically women staging a coup <laughs> mm -hmm. and locking down means um i'm going to create strict rules around your behavior okay. because we need to stop what you're doing yeah yeah okay gotcha cool Thanks maybe for, for maybe that. for a period of time you know that's kind of yeah. the idea of lockdown is it's not forever yeah Cool. So I, I want to shift to the conversation. I want to talk about like some of the positive examples that um, that we find in scripture and that you write about through the book. And uh, let, you mentioned Deborah earlier. I'd love to start with Deborah in the Old Testament. And so maybe you can tell um, just a little bit of her story and what what um, just what inspires her about you and some of the some of the context that most people might not know about regarding her. Yeah, I, I, you know, the book is about um, New Testament women, but I immediately wanted, when I decided to write this book, I immediately decided I want the first chapter to be on Deborah. Because, just briefly going back to 1 Timothy, because Paul says, uh, Adam was created first, then Eve, and Adam wasn't deceived, but Eve was deceived, and all this. Um, some people operate with this impression that if God forbids women from being pastors or elders, there's some deficiency in their leadership skills. And you'll hear this from time to time, and this was more commonly said in the early middle 20th century, but women are more too emotional, or women aren't great pre preachers, or women are less effective preachers, or women um, uh, focus on relationships rather than decision making, whatever it is, you know, you've, you may have read or heard about those kinds of arguments. And I start with Deborah because she is being called upon by God to be a leader Israel in some of its darkest days. Joshua is Josh. It's Joshua than judges. Joshua is this beautiful, triumphal text of conquest Israel going in the land there's all these worship songs about battle 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 right yeah. um and and it's 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 a it's a very positive picture of Israel being faithful and conquering Canaan and then judges is the mirror opposite of that they you know they enter the land they don't do what God said which is drive out the Canaanites and now they devolve into their worst form. Judges says, no one did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Everyone uh, did what was right in their own eyes. Um, and, and they did not have a king to really guide and lead them. So in the temporary between Joshua and uh, the kings, um, you have God give the people temporary leaders, executive leaders. And these are called judges. Now, actually, most of them didn't actually judge, so it's a little bit of a misnomer. Like Gideon and Samson, they were basically temporary warriors to lead the people from a military standpoint. They weren't really judges, uh, except they were champions of God's law, that you might say, uh, in the sense they're defending Israel physically. Um, Deborah comes along. First of all, she's the only judge that gets a song in her honor. Judges five. Um, and she's the only judge that's also named as a prophet. Uh, Samson was a Nazarite, not quite the same thing, but a prophet is not 
you know, a psychic friend. A, a prophet yeah. is a, a mouthpiece, for, a unique mouthpiece for God. And she actually judged, meaning she sat in the seat of judgment and weighed cases, disputes about Torah between among the people of Israel. So just imagine a line of hundreds of people who have some dispute over Torah with a neighbor or a friend or a family member, and they're waiting to hear Deborah's adjudication. So for all intents and purposes, she's the executive leader. That's why Barak, the military leader, comes to her. She's a spiritual leader. She's a prophet. And she's a spiritual leader because she is the one interpreting Torah, just as Moses did. Uh, she's, uh, uh, you know, she sings this song. She's kind of all wrapped in one, you know, the, the central leader. In fact, Judges 5 says she's mother over Israel. And my question is, if Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 2, um, women need to find their Eve as gullible, weak transgressors, and they need to defer to their greater, uh, their their greater partner Adam. Why would God, why would God put deposition that would yeah. almost ensure disappointment and failure? Now, some people say, "Oh, yeah, but she's there to shame men for not stepping up." Um, men look bad throughout the whole of Judges. <laughs> Uh, men look oh, pretty bad, yeah, and and yeah. God, when God chose Gideon and when God chose Samson, it wasn't because they were righteous. Uh, read the text for yourself. Samson breaks. Samson breaks just about every rule in the book. Um, so I, I wrote I wrote a little commentary, a little uh, blog commentary on Samson a long time ago, and um, I said, you know, this Samsonite has baggage. That was my little quip about <laughs> Samson, uh, because he. He seems to go out of his way to disobey Torah, um, and and Deborah, nothing in Judges tells us that Deborah was second choice to a man. Nothing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't explain where her husband is. Um, she comes off, according to Judges five, if we narrator, she comes off as the best judge of all. Mm -hmm. So, uh, we would be reading into the text to say she she just didn't she she God God used her to shame someone else. God does yeah. use her to shame Barack, but only only because Barack should have stepped up as a military leader, not as a judge. Yeah. Hmm. Are there any other examples in the Old Testament that stand out to you before we move to the New Testament? I mean, people have people have mentioned Huldah the prophetess and the fact that there were lots of other men that, you know, the people of Israel could have gone to other than Huldah at the time. Um, but I, you know, I, uh, focus my time on the new Testament figures. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just curious, uh, before, before we, uh, write about or talk about some of the examples in the new Testament, I think one of the things that was helpful for me as I was going through the book is you also describe what leadership and roles and functions and stuff like that of the mm -hmm. early church was like, which just clarified, because it's so different than what it is like today. Would you mind it kind of expounding on what that looks like before we get into some of the great examples we find in the New Testament? Absolutely. It's common today to hear people say, women can't be pastors. The Bible says women can't be pastors. And I really try to be clear, nothing in the Bible says that. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean a conversation doesn't need to happen, but uh, we need to know what's actually in the Bible and I'm, I'm actually going to give a lecture to my students on Monday about Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, which mentions that God gave to the people apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now, we have created the word pastor. We've made the word pastor into a technical term for a church office. I believe it wasn't a technical term. I think it's actually better to translate it shepherds. Because nobody went around saying, I'm Pastor Nijay or I'm Pastor Caleb. That it wasn't a title yeah. that was used. I would even say for the first three or 400 years of Christianity. I, I'm not a medieval or reformational historian, but actually my guess is the term pastor came into prominence as a reaction against Catholicism in the Reformation era to have an alternative. The word pastor did exist before that, but it was used generally speaking to talk about a shepherd uh, of the people. Uh, 
Anyway, the reason I bring that up is because the early Christians used different language for leadership. They used three terms for leadership that we find, especially in Paul in the book of Acts. Um, they used the term uh, episkopos, which is sometimes translated bishop. I translate it literally, which is overseer uh, or supervisor. Both those terms convey very well what that is. Um, the second term is diakonos, which is sometimes translated servant or deacon. I actually translate this ministry provider because I don't want to make it seem like servant means lowly servant. So I kind of liken it to a doctor. A doctor is a medical provider, meaning they serve the people, obviously, but we attribute to them expertise and education and training. And the same thing with these deacons, diakonoi. And the third term is presbyteros, which means elder. Now, it's kind of funny that we have a technical term for elder because it literally means old person. <laughs> uh, well, imagine if your church said, we've appointed a bunch of old people, <laughs> old people to the church. But that's their way of saying mature Christians, mature mm -hmm. Christians, very mature, experienced, tested Christians. Um, it, it, Paul sometimes uses the language of character. It's translated as character. And character in Greek means someone who is tested, has been tested by life experience and proves themselves full of character. And that, I think, is correspondence to this word that we use, elder, presbyteros, which doesn't say you can't be an elder until you're 50 or whatever. Life expectancy was pretty young back then, so many of their elders were in their 30s, 20s and 30s, I think. Yeah. Um, so I would be very old, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, but but for like quickly looking at these terms, episkopos, diakonos, presbyteros, let me just quickly say where I think women stand with these, and then you can follow up. Um, overseers, overseers, I think the vast majority were men, just because uh, of the patriarchal society at the time. It was just a given that men would have more leadership experience, military experience, education, experience leading households. But I don't think it prevented women from having those roles. I look at women like Priscilla. I look at women like Nympha and Colossians. Uh, like Junia, um, who were uh, astute, intelligent, showed leadership skills. Um, I think many of them would qualify as Episcopos. Diakonos, it actually says Phoebe is a Diakonos. And here's something funny that I don't think a lot of people know. Diakonos can be translated deacon. It can also be translated as minister. Because the Latin word minister comes from corresponds to the Greek word diakonos. So if you say, can women be deacons? And they say yes, but then you say, can women be ministers? They say no. Read your Vulgate yeah. Latin. Okay. Yeah. And then the third one is elder. It gets a little tricky, but let me just give you a couple things on this. One is, we know for a fact that women were elders, could be elders in Jewish synagogues. And the early Christians followed patterns of the synagogue in terms of systems, structures, leadership. Not exactly but they absorbed and adopted a lot of that stuff. So I can't see why they would change that. And um, if we're talking older, wiser, mature, look at someone like Junia, who is older, wise, mature, even someone Paul would consider a mentor and hero. Look at the patriarchs, Abraham and Sarah. Look how much they bicker back and forth, how much Abraham takes his wife seriously and listens to her about kicking out Hagar, for example. Why wouldn't we have churches where men and women converse about important things the way that Abraham and Sarah do? Here's a wrench I throw in my book. Let's say it's it's the mid middle first century and you have a church uh, somewhere in Judea and Mary, the mother of Jesus, shows up unannounced. She's like royalty yeah. <laughs> in early Christianity. Are you going to tell her that she can't sit in on your elder meeting? I mean, that would be ridiculous. I mean, she's she's an incredible, incredible human being. And I would want to soak up every ounce of everything she says. So that's some fodder for discussion. Mm. Uh, no, I love that. I, I want to follow up on, uh, and, uh, and you get into so many uh, women in the book. I want to follow up on one, and then I'll ask you uh, to choose an, another one, and I'll let you just choose whichever one. Um, I want to follow up on Priscilla, um, because yeah. I feel like 
I, I learned, I felt like I learned a lot just going through the book. Priscilla is probably the one that stood out to me the most personally. And so can you elaborate just more on Priscilla, her context, her her role as an yeah. overseer and, and, uh, and even just a friend to Paul as well? Yeah. Yeah, Priscilla has talked about in numerous texts, which gives us a lot of information. We can triangulate more about her because she's talked about in the book of Acts. There's very few people that are talked about in Acts and in Paul's letters. So that gives us two lenses through which we view someone. So she and her husband Aquila are uh, ministry partners. Um, they, they're Jews. They became Christians uh, through, uh, through the gospel. Um, and they are in the same trade as Paul. Uh, here's some things we know about them. Um, they were business people. So they were tent makers like Paul. And they actually strategically moved from major city to major city like Rome, Corinth, Ephesus for the sake of ministry. Now, today we move a lot as, as Westerners, and it's hard to understand how hard that is for an ancient person. An ancient person put themselves in a very vulnerable position by being away from their family. Mm-hmm. Think about Abraham leaving Earl the Chaldeans, uh, risking everything by leaving your ancestral home, by leaving your people. And here for ministry, they're going from place to place and starting over in a new city. Um, that's a big deal. Here's something else we know. Um, when this uh, traveling Christian philosopher Apollos comes to um, Corinth, Ephesus, I don't remember what city he's in, yeah. but he comes and and Priscilla and Aquila, they hear him preach in the synagogue. Here's a question I didn't ask before I wrote this book. What are the Christians Priscilla and Aquila doing in the synagogue? Because they worship in their in their home. Yeah. They're doing ministry. They're keeping connections to the synagogue so they can have a friendly relationship with fellow Jews. That shows a measure of stature and leadership to say we're taking as our responsibility to be networking with these synagogues. On top of that, they approach Apollos and they say, hey, listen, loved your sermon. Give it a B plus. Uh, there's some pieces missing in your theology. We'd love to follow up with you. We take it for granted that Apollos didn't say, who the heck are you? Yeah. He didn't say, how dare you? God has given me these gifts and, you know, who are you to? They somehow, he somehow recognizes their wisdom, maybe authority. Then it says they they took them to their home. Now, some people have said, and I say this in my book, some people have said, oh, because it's a private setting, then that shows that there isn't kind of an official ecclesiological teaching. That is profoundly ridiculous because (laughs) for two reasons. One is there were no physical buildings called churches. Christians meant homes. Two, this was the most natural thing to do that even Paul would do because if you're going to challenge someone's theology, it is a normal thing in that time to offer them hospitality. And you offer hospitality in your home. That's what you do, right? So they bring him home. And then another layer to it, there's a Roman historian named Emily Hemelrich who points out, she's not a Christian scholar. She doesn't talk about religion, but she points out the home is where you kept your books, right? This is my home. This is where I keep my books. Yeah. Uh, the home is where you kept your books. So I like to say she took she took them she took them to her seminary library. <laughs> there were no seminaries, but she took them to the library yeah. in her home where she can pull books off the shelf and say, "Hey, this is what Jesus said. This is what the apostles have taught." And uh, it seems from the text we have about Priscilla that when she's named first, which is several times before her husband. Priscilla and Aquila rather than Aquila and Priscilla. Mm-hmm. The name order says something about her prominence in ministry and maybe even her being the more active one in teaching uh, Apollos. That's not pure speculation because some of the patristic writers from the third and fourth century actually t- take for granted that Priscilla did the majority of, of the instruction. Now, people have said, oh, but she didn't do it officially and she didn't. Not a lot of things happened officially in the ancient world. (laughs) This is 2000 years ago. The fact that it's talked about in scripture, that she's a recognized leader, that she's a house church leader along with her husband, 
gives it gives it an air of uh, officialness. Now, Paulus was already a good teacher, as we learned First Corinthians, yep. right? Um, uh, Apollos planted, uh, I bought it, Apollos planted, God gave the growth. Yep. Paul is saluting Apollos. So for her to be a teacher of Apollos is is pretty amazing. So she, I mean, the, these, the last thing I'll say is in Romans 16, Paul says, um, the Gentiles owe a debt of gratitude. All the Gentiles owe a debt of gratitude to this couple. Mm-hmm. That's that's a pretty big thing to say. That's, that's Yeah, that's a big statement, especially whenever you consider who's saying it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, is there, uh, is there, and I know there's probably so many that you can name off of just women in the early church or in uh, early Jesus followers, but is there just one that stands to mind in the New Testament that you want to make sure that we talk about or mention? I mean, if we're just so kind of throwing things out there yeah. that are kind of really interesting, um, I'll tell you someone I'd never even thought about before I wrote this book, Damaris, yeah. the Athenian Damaris. Um, I've read the book of Acts before, but it's easy to miss people's names and details and know who's a woman and who's a man. Um, and here we have Paul giving this famous speech at Mars Hill where he's talking about uh, Jesus and the people are not really resonating with it. And only a small number of people from that philosophical throng go up and talk to Paul afterwards and say, hey, do you have any pamphlets about this? You know, uh, And two of the people that are mentioned are Dionysius the uh, Arapagite uh, and uh, uh, Damaris the Athenian. Um, this was a man's world in general, and the philosophical world was definitely a man's world mm-hmm. um, because of the intellectual elitism, the education involved, the free time to sit around and just gab about philosophy. And we have to ask questions, which I do over and over again in my book. Why are women in these places? And how are the apostles responding to them? And Paul doesn't, Demaris, as far as we can tell, hey, you need to be with your husband or your husband needs to teach you or um, go home. You know, you know, she's taken seriously as some kind of participant. Some people say, oh, she was like an escort. That's speculation. We don't know why she was there. All we know is that she understood what Paul said, which was probably philosophically heavy. Mm-hmm. And she responded with faith, and she stands as one of the many characters in Acts that gets the gospel, that understands the yeah. gospel. Now, Richard Bauckham is a New Testament scholar, has a theory that is often talked about in the Gospels and Acts scholarship, that when people are named, inst- you know, Paul could have said a few people believed in Jesus, and, and then Paul could have moved on. Sorry, Luke, we're in the book of Acts. Luke, excuse me. <laughs> Luke could have said that. Why does he name people like Dionysius or Damaris? And Bauckham has this theory, especially with the Gospels, I think it applies to Acts. They became famous leaders in early Christianity. So these are like little Easter eggs that are yeah. in the text. Hey, you know that person? That Well, this is their origin story. Yeah. You know, this is when they found Jesus. And it's supposed to give you that sense of, oh, I saw a poster. I saw you. I saw a plaque with their name on it. I saw a guest book and, you know, um, and so my assumption is that Damaris became someone of prominence, whether she was a leader, we don't know, but um, her name is recorded in the book of Acts as one of these courageous philosophical uh, uh, Athenians that believed in in Paul's message uh, in the book of Acts. She stands out to me just because it's easy to pass by that text and not pay attention to how she would have been maybe one or two women in that group and for her to come forward and talk to paul or for her to start asking questions you know google what are the closest yeah. churches in <laughs> athens yeah. um what what was her what was her story after that what did it look like i would love a no, a little novella oh. on damaris yeah uh you know, uh, we, we've talked a lot about, you know, how, how what Paul has to say and a lot of what the New Testament has to say. As as we're moving towards wrapping up, you know, I would just love to ask, what inspires you about how Jesus treated women as you read it throughout the New Testament? Um, I mean, a lot of things inspire me. I, you know, I, I, um, 
come back to Jesus. I'm going to go to Romans 16 really quick. Uh, yeah. Paul met, names all these women in Romans 16, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Mary, Junia, Phoebe, all these women. Uh, and he can say things about them in such a way that you know he knows them personally. And I remember someone saying to me, how many pastors, male pastors, can commend women leaders with that specific amount of detail? Mm -hmm. um, whether or not they're fellow pastors or whatever roles, can they do that? Do they know them that well that they can commend them with specific detail? Going back to Jesus, um, he knew women He and he was vulnerable in in their presence now that doesn't mean anything inappropriate but mm -hmm. the woman at the well he asks her for a drink i mean i would love to be one of the like five people in the world that jesus asked them of something you know like <laughs> jesus asked for my donkey yeah jesus asked me for a drink because you know this is the person that has everything yeah. right he asks her for water that's an initial expression of need Jesus needed something from now you might say it's a ploy uh I take whatever Jesus says at face value if he needed water yeah. he needed water he does yeah. say on the cross I'm thirsty so we know he gets thirsty sometimes <laughs> um so he's vulnerable before women uh John chapter 2 uh he listens to women like his like his mother he listens to women he talks about women in his parables he talks to women um and I don't know what sort of master plan he had for um, talking to the women at the tomb. I assume that he dispatched or at least approved the angels talking to the women. But I just, I just heard, I don't know if you just recently heard Rick Warren's statements about why he's changed his mind to uh, uh, accept and affirm women as yeah. pastors. But he follows N.T. Wright and others who point to Mary Magdalene and says, uh, if it's good enough for Jesus to uh, commission these women at the tomb and to even hold them responsible saying, you should have known, <laughs> you should have known yeah. that he taught that he, if it's good enough for Jesus and the angels, it's good enough for me to say he's entrusted them. He could have said, I love to think what could Jesus have done? Yeah. He could have said, hey, women, go get the men and bring them here. Hmm. And these angels will just, you know, have a cup of coffee, sit and wait, bring the men back. And we'll... But there is some uh, primary agency in sending them to uh, to go and talk to the men and tell them. So, uh, I, you know, Jesus, Jesus is one of these um, people that constantly troubles the waters of what we think is normal and appropriate. Yeah. Um, and I think he does that in his in his relationships with women. I mean, people have said, oh, Jesus didn't have women disciples as the 12 because it looked scandalous. He's traveling with a bunch of single women. <laughs> it already looks scandalous. Yeah. Um, these women are there. And who shows up at the tomb? Who shows up? It's not Peter. It's not John. It's not James. Uh, it's the women. The women show up for Jesus, even if they're just showing up to to visit his body and to anoint him. According to the Gospel of John, the men are locked indoors with the security system on, high, cowering in the corner, while the women are carrying their spices and their oils to the tomb. I mean, that is a powerful image that oh, yeah. that that is inspired by Jesus himself, I would say. Well, I know there's a lot more in the book, and there's a lot of other things that we could talk about. But is there anything else just top of mind that you want to make sure that we mention before we wrap up? Um, I, I would just say, um, you know, if there are people listening, you know, who are hesitant, and I know that for even for myself, there are there are consequences to changing your mind on a subject because your own community is going to question you. People are going to question your sanity. People are going to question your orthodoxy. Um, you know, I have a podcast called Slow Theology with AJ Swoboda. Um, take your time. Uh, take your time to make the right decision. Take your time to read and study. Mm -hmm. And I would just tell people, um, don't do things or don't not do things because of fear. 
Um, You know, part of what God gives us in scripture is the power to be courageous and, um, and, and, and following, following our, our convictions and our conscience is courageous. So I just encourage people keep reading, keep studying and, and just really pray and, and, and read openly uh, what does scripture actually say on these things and go from there. Yeah. Well, Nij, I know that people are going to want to keep up with you, get the book, and you mentioned your podcast as well. Where's the best place for people to go to, you know, keep up with you on all those things? Yeah, I have a blog where I do a lot of academic stuff, academic reviews called Crux Sola, which means the cross alone. So you can uh, go there if you want, if you want to super nerd out on my stuff. Um, I have a magazine column on spiritual formation for a magazine called Fathom Magazine. So you can look up Fathom Magazine and type my name and it'll come up. The column is called Written for Us. Written, Yeah, Written for Us. Um, and then, yeah, the podcast, those are the best ways. I mean, I'm on social media. Um, I'm not as active as I used to be because I'm trying to focus on, on writing and other things. Um, but also, I want to plug Northern Seminary. Um, if you're interested, we do allow uh, people to take courses just a one-off if you want to sit on one of my courses i will actually be teaching women and the new testament uh in early 2024 and we'll be using my book and other books the textbook textbook we'll be having guest speakers in the class so um you know be in touch with me if you're interested in that course awesome that's great well thanks so much for being on the podcast and just thanks for a wonderful conversation and for doing the work and for sharing it with us absolutely good with you So going off of this conversation, I think one of the things that I'm just reminded of, particularly in this episode, is the importance of just exploring questions that we that we hold, and that it's that it's important for us to explore these questions. This is this is a, a question. This is a question that many people have. However, a lot of people don't treat that question with respect. And because they don't treat that question with respect, maybe they just assume that women shouldn't do this or shouldn't do that or should do this and should do that. They miss out. They miss out on just so much. So much. And not only do they miss out on so much, women miss out so much because maybe they have to deal with the the ramifications or not maybe they do have to deal with the ramifications of internalizing that hey you're not good enough to lead hey you're not you know you're not a man and so you can't do this or you're a woman and you should do that and we need to explore these questions and we need to seek this out because in some cases like this question because we don't know the truth or we don't seek it out we miss out And we end up getting hurt and we end up hurting other people as well. And so that's my big takeaway from this conversation. And, and also that we, that women are obviously treated equally and that they can hold and do so many things, especially whenever it comes to leadership in the church, just what Nije was talking about. And we need to treat them so and we need to treat them the way that Jesus treated them as well. So those are some of the things that I'm thinking about from this conversation. If you enjoyed it, please check out Nije's book. And if you continue, or if you wanted to continue on this journey of lifelong learning, please subscribe to my Substack as well, and you'll find a bunch of uh, different recommendations to help you continue to learn and grow and all of that good stuff as well. And so I think that's all that I have. So I do want to say thank you to Sam Massey for helping me or for creating the music for this podcast. Thank you to Nije for being on the podcast and such a great conversation. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.